The first reading can be found in John, page 1063 of your church Bibles, and it's chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And this will be followed by the second reading, which is John 14, verses 1 to 9, and can be found on page 1082. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And we continue on page 182, John 14. Do not, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have, not, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know, you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Alex. Let's uh, begin with a prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, the true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And we thank you that in our darkness you bring light and in our confusion you bring truth. 
So we do pray that uh, we would leave church this evening with a, a greater certainty that you are indeed the truth. And we ask it for your glory. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to be liked. I don't like it when people take against me. I really don't like it when people I don't know leap to the wrong conclusions about me, unfair conclusions. And I really, really don't like it when people I don't know slag me off without ever having met me and on one really awful occasion published something that was totally untrue about me and about what I believe and stand for or what they thought I believed and stood for. I like to be liked. I guess we all do. We're thinking this evening, as John said, about this whole idea of certainty in a world of relativism. That is, being sure of certain things as a Christian. And when many people or most people say everything's relative, nothing can be taken as certain, the Christian says, yes, there is absolute truth. We're taking a couple of weeks uh, off from our series in, in Revelation, just in case you were panicking that we'd left Revelation high and dry. We, I promise we'll be back next week in Revelation. Um, and we actually have an, an occasional series that comes every now and again on distinctives in Christian living. And we, we have looked in the past at things like uh, holiness and wholeheartedness, uh, purity and contentment. Uh, and today uh, we're looking at uh, some of the challenges Christians, Christians face when they hold certain things to be true in the face of a world that says there is no such thing as absolute truth, certainty in a world of relativism. Certainty has almost become a dirty word. Conviction certainly has. These are words that imply that we know what's right. There's a certain kind of arrogance implied by that. A confidence that not only are we right, but others are wrong. And of course, we have to be honest that sometimes Christians can be arrogant. Sometimes Christians can be unwilling to enter into the debate. And they just shout their platitudes from the safety of the confines of their church buildings. Sometimes Christians be pious, can be pious and adopt a rather holier-than-thou attitude of disapproval to others who disagree with them. And all that is deeply unattractive, and you can see why people react against that. There is a wrong kind of certainty and conviction that buries its head in the sand and doesn't really want to know what other people are thinking, doesn't really engage with the ideas, and simply shouts out the old truisms louder and louder. At the same time, the Christian is called to be convinced, to be certain. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things yet to be seen, says the writer to the Hebrews. Funnily enough, in the world of politics, we, the word conviction is often used in a rather positive way. People talk about conviction politicians. Margaret Thatcher was called a conviction politician, and more recently, so has Jeremy Corbyn. Now, you may not agree with either of them, and it's certainly impossible to agree with both of them, 
at the same time. But even those who disagree with them speak with a certain sort of begrudging respect for the fact that they held true to their principles. Because a conviction politician is someone who holds their fundamental values and ideas rather than going for the sort of soft consensus view, the populist view, or shifting their grounds just to make themselves electable. Conviction politicians know where they stand and they stand for what they believe in and they're not going to give ground just because people don't like what they stand for. And in some ways, a Christian is in rather a similar situation. To be a Christian is to hold to certain convictions. We haven't done it this evening, but very often we we say a creed. This is what I believe. And I stand with my brothers and sisters all around the world. I hold to these truths. And they're not not always popular. A few weeks ago, John uh, Ash introduced the creed by saying, almost all of these statements in the creed are contentious. And if we said these in the marketplace, someone would shout us down for saying them. Just turn with me to John chapter 1, page 1063. John chapter 1. Christianity, of course, claims to be unique among the religions of the world. All other religions attempt to reach after God, and Christianity begins not on earth, but in heaven. Not with humanity, but with God. So look at John chapter 1, verse 1. And he begins with this great declaration. In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus, known here as the Word, is God himself. And therefore, he was there right from the start. Verse 3, Jesus is the creator. Through him, all things were made. Verse 4, Jesus is the life giver. In him was life. But then at one moment in history, Jesus entered our world. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. Or in other versions, the word became a human being and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now at last it is possible to know God. We have seen his glory. The one and only, capital capital O, (laughs) has come to earth. We now know what God is like. And he's full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. God has revealed himself to us. People didn't know what God was like, but he's now revealed himself in Jesus. Then turn over a few pages to that second reading. We had John chapter 14. Perhaps one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. Verse 6. 
Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. And in the original, uh, in Greek, you don't actually have to put the definite article, but the translators always give it to just make, give it sense. But actually in the Greek, John has written it with the definite article, the. I am the way, the truth, the life. So he's not a way or a truth. It's a deliberate thing. And then the second half of the verse absolutely underlining the point. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. There aren't many ways to God. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the truth. And although he didn't stay on earth long, he left us his words. He left us the Bible. And he gave authority to his disciples to write the Gospels and the Epistles. So the New Testament has Jesus' stamp of authority on it. If you just look across at verse 26 of chapter 14, top of page 1083, Jesus says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit was given to help the disciples write the New Testament. They wouldn't be able to remember everything brilliantly a few years on, but the Holy Spirit reminded them. So different styles, different literary styles, different writers, different authors, but one Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, God's Holy Spirit, inspiring them, helping them, reminding them. So the whole Bible, both, both Old Testament and New Testament, is a revelation from God. As Jesus said to his father in John 17, your word is truth. Now, of course, to some people, this statement is a gross arrogance. And yet each Sunday, we've just said it, the end of the reading, someone says, this is the word of the Lord. And uh, we don't say, oh, no, it's not. Or I like that bit, but not the other bit. We just say, thanks be to God. And for thousands of years, Christians have based their faith and their life on the Bible. Now, somebody asked me on Wednesday evening, what is a Christian to do when the Bible is so clearly wrong and out of date? Uh, you might guess that this person uh, is a self-confessed skeptic. It's an interesting question, and it's a question asked by many. I wonder what you'd say in response to, to that question. What is a Christian to do when the Bible is so clearly wrong and out of date? I was very glad I was asked that question because it just reminds me that, you know, it's great when we meet together here. We're you know, pretty much on the, on the same side, pretty much agreed. But, you know, the world out there sees it very differently. And this was in particular in relation to sexual ethics. And to hold Christian convictions, biblical convictions about God and life and ethics will often be perceived by others to be wrong and out of date. To proclaim the uniqueness of Jesus or the supremacy of Jesus will by many be considered to be arrogant and wrong and out of date. 
To say that the Bible has authority, particularly if it is contrary to the popular views of today, many will see as reactionary. They might even call you a bigot for holding those views. And potentially, with current legislation going through, worthy of a hate crime. And we like to be liked. I don't like to be called a bigot. I don't think I am bigoted, but that's what some people call me. Simply because I believe that the Bible is God's word. We don't like being called hateful because we stand by biblical morality. And yet if Jesus Christ is our Lord, we stand with the one who John chapter 1 verse 11 tells us came to that which was his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was not always popular. Jesus was a man of conviction. He certainly didn't go for the consensus view. He regularly stood up to the religious and political leaders, the original thought police, with these words, I tell you the truth. Truly, truly, I say to you. He was, though, full of grace. <clears throat> Excuse me, full of grace and truth. Of course, we're called to be certain. We're called to be convinced. We're called to base our lives on this word, which is the word of the Lord, which is the truth of God. But we're called to do so full of grace and love and compassion and gentleness and not in a kind of hectoring way, but still full of truth, convinced, certain, And for the Christian today, our knowledge of the truth doesn't depend on our own ideas or how the cultural mores of our society shift. It depends on the words of the one who said, I am the truth. Living by the truth won't always be easy. It won't make us popular all the time. But the Christian is called to submit in humility to God's word, even if it clashes with what others believe. Now, given that we have received the truth from the Lord Jesus Christ, I just want to look briefly in, in conclusion at four implications or four consequences. The first is know the truth. 1 Peter 2 verse 2 says, Like newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. I love those two, two verbs, crave and grow up. And of course, if you've got a small child in your family, some cousin, nephew, grandchild, whatever, you know what their craving sounds like when they're little. You just can't ignore it. They just must get some of that milk and they want it now. And then I think, is that how I am with the word? Am I craving it? Do I want it more than anything else? 
And of course, if, if a child doesn't feed, they're stunted. The Christian doesn't feed, they become pygmy Christians. They're stunted. They may die. Of course, there's no substitute for regular intake of spiritual work, the spiritual milk, so that by it we may grow up in our salvation. We come to church for all sorts of reasons and all sorts of good reasons. Friendship, worship, supper, meeting with one another. But principally, it's to feed from the word. And if you ever have a service here at St. Michael's where there's no sermon, you have full permission to stand up and complain, you know, write to the bishop, say, our, our vicar did not give us a sermon on Sunday. Can you please sort him out? Because we've come here to feed on the word. All those other things are really important. I'm not decrying those at all, but we need to feed on the word. And indeed on our own, in our home groups. Perhaps reading a commentary. Maybe um, you've had a lot of milk over the years and you need a bit of meat. Perhaps a study Bible. Maybe ask for a, a commentary as a Christmas present. Listening to sermons, discussing the sermon on the way to the pub, on the way home afterwards. What's the chat about later on in the evening? Perhaps reading one-to-one. -one. Maybe you've been going as a Christian for a while and as some new person in the church you're just getting to know fairly new as new in the faith as well what could be better for them or indeed for you than to read the bible one to one together so that they can grow and you can grow in your salvation we all lead very busy lives <clears throat> we were saying a group of us the other night that in a really busy day the first thing that usually goes is reading the Bible. We know in our heart of hearts that that's the most important thing, but it's the first thing that can often slip. The psalmist said, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. wonder if that's our feeling about the word. Oh, how I love your law. I crave your law. Think of the Bible as um, God's love letter to you. And he writes one to you every day. Just imagine, imagine some person who loves you so much, they write to you every day and it's just a, a letter of love and encouragement to you. And every morning, this letter comes through the letterbox. I mean, I get a handwritten letter about once a fortnight, if I'm lucky. Imagine one coming from a special person every day, and I just say, I'm really busy. Shove it in the drawer. I'll read it later. I promise. This sort of pile of letters build up. Oh, how I love your law. Know the truth. The second consequence of the truth coming from Jesus is that we should live the truth. James 1 verse 22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Bible study must not simply be an intellectual exercise. Yes, it should, you know, activate the grey matter. But James 1 talks of deceiving ourselves by simply listening to the word. 
We can say to ourselves, I've read the Bible, I've listened to the sermon, I've downloaded that thing and listened to it online, I think I understand it. Brilliant. Well, James says, now, do what it says. Live the truth. Paul says to Titus that the knowledge of truth leads to godliness. The caricature of a Christian, and indeed it's an ugly caricature, is someone who's strong on truth and weak on love. And it is possible to listen to the word and not act on it. And there is a danger that we can be quick to condemn others and fail to see the plank in our own eye. And the key to Bible reading is application. Always try and say when, uh, at the, when I'm leading our home group, ask that question, the punchline question, how am I going to be different as a result of reading this passage today? Perhaps ask yourself that tomorrow morning as you read a short passage of the Bible. How am I going to be different in the light of reading this? Okay, I've understood it, but what impact is it going to have on my life? How is it going to affect my relationships? How is it going to affect the way I do my job? What sins do I need to repent of? What am I asking the Holy Spirit's help for in my Christian life? Live the truth. Third consequence of the truth coming from Jesus, contend for the truth. Jude, verse 3, says, I felt I had to write to you to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Contend for the truth. The Christians here in the first century were being challenged to contend for the faith. Paul himself was dragged before Caesar to explain himself. And Christians who hold to the teaching of Jesus will not make themselves universally popular either. One philosophy student received this comment at the end of their essay. Remove the parts of this essay that contain absolute values and you will receive a much better mark. Relativism reigns. The idea that everyone's opinion is equally valid. And to dare to say that someone else is wrong, we'll find that we're quickly condemned as an intolerant bigot. I have a friend who, when he was at Oxford, organized a meeting for fellow students where the question being addressed was, was Jesus the Jewish Messiah? This friend was a Christian, but had grown up in a Jewish family and had become a Christian. He spoke and then opened it up to questions, and it was a very uh, open and frank discussion. Not everyone agreed with him, of course, but there was a furore afterwards. And I picked up on this story watching Sunday morning TV, that kind of Sunday morning chat show. And this friend was hauled over the coals by a very, very angry rabbi who accused him of spiritual Nazism, preying on vulnerable people. These are Oxford students, probably able to put up an argument for themselves, but... Here he was doing what we've been commanded to do, sharing the good news, pointing out that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and he's accused of being a spiritual Nazi. Well done him for contending for the faith. It'll be hard at times to confess 
to, uh, to contend for the faith. We like to be liked. And standing for the truth and contending for the faith will sometimes make us unpopular. The fourth consequence of the truth coming from Jesus is that we are to proclaim the truth. Jesus' last words in Matthew's Gospel are these, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And just as contending for the truth will be tough at times, so, is, so proclaiming the truth will be tough at times. It's not always tough, and sometimes it's a fantastic joy to see someone engage in the, in the uh, discussion, become convinced, and say, yes, you know, I want this for myself. My guess is that all of us were like that at one point. We've all had to be persuaded somewhere down the line. But it is a countercultural activity. If we keep quiet about our faith, on the whole, people won't mind the fact that we're Christians. They'll leave us be. But once we start to speak about our faith and encourage other people to engage with the ideas, to embrace the truth for themselves, then their hackles will rise. I don't know if you saw an article on the front, front page of the Daily Telegraph a week ago that said that Christians are three times more likely to put someone off their faith by sharing their faith than they are to put them on. Message from the Daily Telegraph, shut up, Christians. Now, of course, Christians can be crass in the way they go about sharing their faith, and I'm sure that sometimes... I'm, I know I've sometimes said things that have not put it very well and I've perhaps given offense. Yet Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go. Maybe God is calling some people here this evening. Go. Perhaps go into Christian ministry full time. Go overseas. Go and chat with your neighbor. Go to your office tomorrow and talk with your colleague. Go and renew contact with that old friend. We've got our events week next February and March. But events week or not, God is calling us all to go and make disciples. And if we believe the truth... If we believe that this is the truth, this is life-changing truth, this is salvation truth, and without it we're lost, then we owe it to our friends to share it to them. I don't know if you've read Rico Tice's book, Honest Evangelism. And part of the honesty is that there are some uncomfortable truths that we have to share with people. And part of the honesty is that, let's face it, we often would rather just, you know, watch Downton Abbey or, you know, put our feet up go to the pub and chat with a friend. But Jesus calls us to go and make disciples. And it is a wonderful truth, isn't it? The gospel is great news. And also, we've got a wonderful saviour. Look at that last verse. He promises that he's going to be with us always as we go. So we're not going alone. He'll be with us till the very end of the age. So let's be quiet for a moment.
and perhaps ask ourselves that question. How am I going to live differently in the light of these verses that we've looked at? Jesus, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord Jesus, in our world that so often doesn't want to hear the truth, we pray that you would help us to believe the truth, to live the truth, and to share the truth. And we pray that you'd help us to do it full of grace and compassion and love. Because it is true. And we want other people to share it with us. So please help us to be people who are certain in our relativist world. We ask it for your glory. Amen.